This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. My name is Leah Payne. I'm a historian, author, professor, and wannabe Scully for life. Why wannabe? You are Scully for life. <laughs> My name is Brian Doak. I'm a professor and biblical scholar, and it is supposed to be 114 degrees here on Sunday, and I cannot and Ugh, will not. I know. On this episode of Weird Religion, we talk with one of our favorite people about one of our favorite shows, Dr. David Dalt, assistant professor of Christian spirituality at Loyola University, Chicago, and host of a really great show, Things Not Seen Radio, and he comes to talk with us about The X-Files. We're going to talk about life and death and the great mysteries of this world and other worlds as well. Hey, how many academics love The X-Files? Uh, if they've seen it, they usually love it. Uh, yeah, I've heard always. <laughs> Nerd alert. Join us. <laughs> Join us. I watched an X-Files app last night for the first time in a long time. You did. But you watch the show like every year, don't I you? Wa- it's, it's my annual tradition. There are a couple of shows. There are like three shows that I watch. Do you watch it I on watch. like Christmas Four Day? Shows. Christmas Day, Valentine's Day? Uh, if I could get... <laughs> see, my, my spouse, who is a really brilliant person, but he falls asleep in every X-Files episode, so I can't get him to... So I have to... I watch it on my own time. It's on the off season. I yeah, see, I love it. I love that show. I totally get it. I watched Memento... More, Ugh. which I've heard is one of the best. It is. It is a classic episode. And, and I think we should just talk about the show. Well, wait a second. We cannot talk about the X-Files without one of the world's great X-Files aficionados. What? Our Who, friend. Do you know somebody? I do. Who? I do. He's brilliant. Our friend, Dr. David Dalt. David Dalt. Yes. He we, loves no, the X-Files. We have talked to David Dalt before. We I, do. We need I, to talk to him. Did I know he was he was into the X-Files like this? Of course he is. Of course he is. Well, he it's be. like the second or third thing that true X-Files fans mention about themselves. Yeah. It's, it's like, like here are me, I'm married here's with this me, many I've got kids. Kid here's my most people held belief. I love the X-Files. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, not, well, you know what? We should just call him up. We should. Let's we should. call him up. I, it's a Chicago time. He's not. He's not too far ahead of us here. Hello, this is David. David! David! Brian and Leah from Weird Religion. Did we wake you up? My favorite show? <laughs> oh, of course. I'm so glad to hear from you. Thank you. guys you. do great work. You do uh, great work, David. And we are so excited to be talking to you right now because we want to talk with you about something really big. If you're okay with talking about the, the X-Files, the X-Files, is that a thing you're, you're up for? Oh my goodness, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Leah, I just watched Memento Mori last night. and That um, is a fantastic episode. You should not be watching that at night. Okay, the moment when the oh, guy when the guy great. comes in with the knife and stabs the guy and then he fizzles out like he's an alien. <laughs> I'm just like, I am missing something. This is not, I'm not as big of a fan of the show as you two are. I, mean, I am a big fan. My heart is there. It's just like my time and my energy hasn't gotten there. But I'm just like, mm-hmm. that creeped me out. Why? Okay, question number one, David. What... What do you think X-Files has done for the alleyway scene? How many alleyway <laughs> chase scenes did they, they didn't invent that, I know, but like, can you just riff on the alleyway scenes where like, you know, Mulder will be running down an alleyway or something? Cause they had one, of course. 
Well, I, I will say that, all joking aside, X-Files made possible a whole slew of stories. So if you were a fan of Lost, or if you were a fan of Fringe, yes. or oh, I were, love Fringe, you know, yeah. all, all those different kind of things, you know, really the X-Files made that kind of popular. It wasn't the first show to do that, because X-Files, the creators of it, will look back at another show called Kolchak the Night Stalker. Yes. Oh. Of course, shows like Night Gallery and The Twilight Zone. Oh. So all of those are part of the ethos, but it was really the X-Files that in many ways kind of broke that open into popular culture, to where kind of weird fringe culture and pop culture really kind of meshed. And so, even if they didn't invent the alleyway chase scene, they certainly made it a palatable part of a really good creepy hour of television you know what i you mentioned something earlier brian which is that it's it 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 originally aired late at night it's the perfect nighttime tv show i remember watching it as a kid like on sundays when my parents were sort of like not in the room but kind of drifting in and out Mm -hmm. and maybe no one was paying attention to me and it's just really i remember there being an episode about like some People living out in the hills that like oh, really, yeah. really freaked me out. That was a really good one too. I was, I was yeah, the like, scariest hour of television. It's called. It it really uh, was yes in the best possible way because it wasn't super gory or anything. It was this kind of slow. It's a slow paced show for those of you who haven't seen it because I know we have grad students who are too young to have seen the X Files. It's very slow paced, but it is very creepy and Memento Mori is one of the all-time great oh, episodes. I'm so, glad, I'm so glad I watched that one. David, I want to ask you a question, which is, as a fellow diehard, hardcore fan, what do you think it is about the X-Files that attracts the love and adoration of academics? So many academics in our generation love this show. Well, and particularly religion scholars. And, <laughs> and so I, I will say when I was uh, teaching, not at Loyola where I'm teaching now, but at a, a school a few years ago down in Tennessee, uh, I, I was teaching undergraduates and I, I taught an honors class called Madness, Conspiracy, and Religious Belief. Oh, come on. One, one of the reasons why I was really interested in that kind of set of topics was because I saw, if you think about the Venn diagram, the three circles, they overlap a lot. Like people hearing voices, that's conspiracy, that's madness, that's religious faith. Uh, People doing things for secret reasons. I mean, all those things overlap. And I think that the X-Files really brings out in religion scholars, but other scholars as well, that love of that kind of overlap where we're, we're dealing with multiple different human experiences. And this one show allows you to kind of encompass and incorporate them all into your discussion and your reflection. And so I think that the stories are well told, the characters are well developed, and you get enough of a mythology and a backstory to it in the course of watching it that you really, I mean, it's very satisfying on a narrative level, but it's also really intellectually satisfying if you're into that kind of kind of spooky voices stuff, which religion scholars oftentimes are. Spooky Mulder. You know, for those of those who aren't familiar with the general plot of the X-Files, David, would you summarize in, in, in a couple of sentences, how would you give an elevator pitch of the X-Files? 
So imagine an alternate universe where the FBI doesn't just investigate crime, but also for a number of decades has been investigating the things that go bump in the bump in the night. And they they've never been proud of this, but it has always been a part of what they've been doing. So if you think about Operation Blue Book back in the 50s and 60s, where, you know, we we know now that the federal government was actually investigating the possibility of aliens. Just imagine that that never stopped and that it that it it spills over into modern day conspiracies like the Kennedy assassination, like Iran-Contra and all of that, and then follow two agents, one who is absolutely committed to these narratives and these files, and one who is very skeptical, trying to work these cases. And that's fundamentally what the X-Files is as a structure. But if you just think that it's a, it, that it's a police procedural, you're going to miss the entire point of the show. I love that so much. And, you know, for our listeners, you couldn't see, but Brian was raising his hands in triumph (laughs) when you were talking about government conspiracies, because he is, it's funny to me that you aren't a huge X-Files fan because you basically are. I I am. I just haven't watched it as much, but I think I was just thinking like, can we, (laughs) what are the odds that we could change jobs and do this? I've actually thought about it. I, out that one of our listeners, do you want to recruit us for the FBI? Because we are here. I, okay. So I was also <laughs> thinking as David was talking, I was like, okay, where's the fiction here? This is real, right? Like there, there must be, there must be something like this that actually exists. And I think we, we've gotten little insights into this with this ATIP program and these people who have worked in the Pentagon. I mean, maybe it's not the FBI exactly detail here and there, but I mean, you know, maybe the show ends up having like a ring of, of truth about it that just in terms of like what our government has actually been doing, even if they're not investigating maybe some of the things that were investigated on the show, there have to be segments of like the CIA, the FBI groups that are actually exploring very strange things that must actually just be true. Well, that's that's another really good point, Brian, because if you want to think about another precursor to the X-Files, it would be the work of Thomas Pynchon. And if mm-hmm. you think about books like Crying of Lot 49 or Gravity's Rainbow, Pynchon takes fact and then he weaves fiction around the facts so that if you go back and research things that are talked about in, in both of these books and, and other narratives by Pynchon, you're gonna, it's going to be hard to tell where, where the fact stops and the fiction begins. And Frank Spotnitz and Chris Carter and the others that were really kind of running the, the X-Files during the main run of the show were really, really good about exactly that kind of weaving of fact and fiction together. Things that are almost, you know, if you if you look them up on Wikipedia now, you would find that it's there really was something going on there, mm-hmm. but maybe not in the way that the story took it. You um, know, one of my favorite things about the show is that is the tone because it could have been like really <laughs> wacky comic booky. Oh no. But no, no, it is yeah. a very serious it's like you're watching Law and Order but you're talking about aliens and the two characters are, are the, they have realistic dialogue about what, what you would actually consider now, if you were trying to talk. About. One answer to your question, Leah, I <laughs> want to ask you, I mean, you know that this is also a reason why particularly religious studies academics are into it because the two main characters embody something. Yes. Um, could you, could you say for our audience case, in case someone's listening and they're still hanging in there to this point in this hyper literate discussion of Thomas Pynchon and uh, the FBI. And they still haven't seen the X-Files. And they still haven't seen it. Like Mulder and Scully, what do they, what do they represent? Yes. The so I think it, very briefly, they represent the tension between skepticism and belief. And what I love about these two characters is Mulder, the male uh, federal agent, represents the usually takes on the role of the believer. And Scully, the female character, 
usually takes on the role of the skeptic. And it's very exciting in the series to watch the the interplay between the two. And I say I like it because it kind of flips the the script usually mm-hmm. about like who in our society is the the holder of religious belief. A lot of times we make that a feminized thing. And oh. so in this this show, it's the male character is this this believer. But every now and then there are episodes where even that script gets yes. flipped. Well, the one, the, 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 uh, the episode that we did called The License, we talked about that song, um, Beyond the Sea and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was one where they were doing a little, a little flipsy. So Spooky Mulder actually became Spooky Scully a little bit there. Um, at some moments, but in, okay, in this episode, David, that we're, that we're, that we're talking about, we're sort of, sort of using as our centerpiece here, although we can go as broadly as you want to go, Memento Mori. What is, what does that phrase Memento Mori mean, by the way? This is season four, episode 14 of the X-Files, Memento Mori. What does that phrase mean? What's, what's the significance of the phrase? And then take us into the show with that phrase. So I, I don't know if this goes beyond the Catholic aesthetic tradition, but I know that it's operative in the Catholic aesthetic tradition. A memento mori was a type of aesthetic object like a painting that would remind you of your mortality. It would mm. remind you that you are mm. – I mean if you think about something like Ash Wednesday for liturgical traditions where somebody puts the ashes on your forehead and says, remember that you are dust, to dust you will return. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best liturgical example I can give for what a memento mori is, to remind you that you are mortal. Mm-hmm. You know, the the New York Times ran a, an article recently by Ruth Graham about a a nun who it is her calling to remind people that they will die. And her calling, she sees it is once a day that humans will remember um, that they're mortal, which is a very strange thing in this culture. It we totally don't like is. to think about death no, at all. She's got a lot of skulls and people will send mm-hmm. her skulls and things in mm-hmm. the mail and so on. Like, okay, so this particular episode, uh, you, I know we're doing a lot in the interest of like summarizing plot here, but like, could you give us like a rundown, David? Like what's what's the plot of this and where does the memento mori kind of, what, like wh- why call the episode that? Sure, let me take two steps back. So for those that are unfamiliar with the structure of the X-Files, there's kind of two different story types that occur. One is there's a large mythology that sort of goes and weaves through the entire series, which has to do with conspiracies in the government and conspiracies in uh, in in sort of extraterrestrial warring factions. And those are called the mythology episodes or the myth arc episodes. And interplaying in this larger arc of narrative, there are what we would call monster of the week episodes where something (laughs) creepy shows up, it creates a mystery, and then that has to be solved. What's interesting about Memento More and the the episodes that immediately precede it and that follow it is that it brings together probably better than at any point in the series uh, a mixture of monster of the week and myth arc episodes. Okay, so in Memento More, we are dealing with the consequences of what happens in the two episodes prior, which are both Monster of the Week episodes, and Memento Mori is a myth arc episode. So two episodes prior, the Monster of the Week is a man whose nutritional, he he accesses nutrition and sustenance by eating other people's cancers. 
and it's oh. as gross it's as gross as you can imagine. <laughs> and so Mulder and Scully are tracking down this character named Leonard Betts and trying to figure out who he is and why he manages to keep escaping because every time that he eats and and nourishes himself, he kind of regenerates. So he's able to escape from things because but there's one point where Leonard Betts and Dana Scully, the female lead of the show, are alone together, and Leonard starts to go after her and says, I'm sorry, but I need something from you. And oh. he's starting to take something from her. And we begin to it begins it begins to sort of dawn on us and on her that if he's feeding on cancer and he's trying to go after her, then maybe she's she's got some cancer. And oh. and if I recall correctly, that particular episode ends with her waking up and there's blood on her pillow from a nosebleed. Oh, dang. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she has a, I believe it's a pharyngeal tumor. By the way, David, I'm eating some chocolate almonds that Leah gave me and I'm pretending that they're cancer. Continue. Okay. <laughs> great. Anyway, it's going great over here. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's interesting is then, then in the next episode, an episode called Never Again, which the first time that I watched it, it seemed very jarring, but but basically, in this particular episode, never again. There's another monster of the week, and it's it's this weird uh, it's this weird uh, pigment in tattoo ink that makes you hallucinate. And Scully goes and kind of has a fling with a guy and ends up getting a lower back tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, Scully! <laughs> and in the process of getting the lower back tattoo, she she begins to hallucinate, and she has some real kind of moments of reckoning with the fact that she she's starting to realize that she might be about to die. Oh. And she does what a lot of people do. She kind of goes off the rails and has some really risky behavior. Mm-hmm. And that sets the stage for then what happens with Memento Mori, where, where in the process of tracking down, now we're back in the, in the in the myth arc, in tracking down some of the UFO conspiracies. So they go to uh, a meeting that, that we see oftentimes in the series of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, which is a group of survivors of UFO abductions. Mm-hmm. And in the process, they find that some members of this MUFON group have been dying of mysterious cancers. And so they go and visit one particular uh, character. Her name is Leslie Hagopian, who has shown up a couple times through the through the series. And in the process of, of kind of interacting with Leslie Hagopian, Scully begins to realize that she, because there's some intimation that she's been a, a, a UFO abductee throughout the series, that she may have the same cancer that the other MUFON people have. So she checks herself in and she starts to undergo chemotherapy. And so there's 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 a lot going on in this episode that has to do with the UFO mythology, with the conspiracy mythology, with stories that were set up in the first and second seasons and now are paying off here in the fourth season. But they also are intimately tied up with this monster of the week kind of vibe. And that's why Memento Mori is such a fantastic episode is because it's really where all of these different sine waves kind of crescendo and just create this one big impact. It's a very emotional episode and the episodes that follow it are heartbreaking. They're just, it's fantastic drama and really, really interesting storytelling. Wow. I, the drama of it, and Jillian Anderson actually won an Emmy for her performance in this particular episode. Which is unusual for a show of this genre, by the uh, way. Yeah, I, I could imagine. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what, what all the history is, but I mean, she was so good 
And there are these moments too where it's like she's doing these voiceovers. Like I think the I think the show even starts with a voiceover where it's like there's this long like tunnel and she's kind of like writing these letters to Mulder or writing these notes that she doesn't mean for him to see. And there's this one particular moment. I wonder if we could dip into the episode itself and just um um, play it where basically she's she's getting some kind of scan and she has this bizarre plastic I guess like face mask thing mm-hmm. and she gives this this speech but she mentions a couple of phrases that I think are very germane, germane to our conversation some of the themes we want to talk about so I wonder if we could listen and uh, get David to comment here we go here's uh, Scully talking in med school I learned that cancer arrives in the body unannounced a dark stranger who takes up residence, turning its new home against itself. This is the evil of cancer, that it starts as an invader, but soon becomes one with the invaded, forcing you to destroy it, but only at the risk of destroying yourself. It is science's demon possession, My treatments, science's attempt at exorcism. Mulder, I hope that in these terms you might know it and know me. And accept this stranger so many recognize but cannot ever completely cast out. And if the darkness should have swallowed me as you read this, you must never think there was the possibility of some secret something you might have done. And though we've traveled far together, this last distance must necessarily be traveled alone. Oh. It's very Uh, (laughs) heartbreaking. What a heartbreaking speech that is. David, care to comment? A couple things. First of all, my wife and I like to joke about how good Scully's voiceovers are and how terrible Mulder's are. <laughs> oh, that's uh, funny. That makes total sense. So, that's yeah. funny. Uh, but this particular moment, I, it raises some very interesting issues. So one thing that I want to say about the dynamic between Mulder and Scully is that Mulder is kind of gullible and open to all manner of extra extraterrestrial, all manner of kind of supra normal kind of mm-hmm. events, except for religious events. He is absolutely allergic and even angry anytime that religion comes up. And the only thing that Scully is in is is open to, at least at the beginning, is the religious. And that dynamic is part of what fascinates me. And so when Scully, who starts out the series saying, I'm trained in hard science, and she comes back to that again and again, I'm trained in hard science, that's why I'm here. For her to be using this kind of language of demon possession and evil that's not out of character for her because that is the way in which she accesses the supra normal or the supernatural is through this kind of religious language. And this is a matter of great concern for her, the, the state of her soul and whether or not she is a good Catholic. Like these all become very important questions for her throughout the series. So for me, this is a wonderful moment giving us a glimpse into that polarity in Scully of the scientific and the the spiritual in a way that 
Mulder doesn't want to access. And I, what's really interesting to me also is though we've traveled far together, this last part I've got to do alone, that just breaks my heart because oh. the entire kind of point of the series is that they do this together. So it's just, I mean, there's a lot there, but I'm interested in what you all think. I thought Mulder is sort of the ultimate Pacific Northwestern Oregonian, probably <laughs> because in Oregon, it's, it's, considered the nun zone. In fact, Oregon of all states, all the states in the union has the least amount of affiliation with, with organized religious movements. However, they also have a very lively form of off the books, religious expression and experiences that include things like, what do you call it? Cryptozoology. So Bigfoot and stuff like that. Mm. And so I was thinking, Oh yeah, Mulder, would definitely be from Oregon. Scully's this trained medical doctor. And yet when she gets to a moment of ultimate importance, mm -hmm. namely remember re coming to the realization that she's mortal, right. she goes to this older schema that is with her. And it's the way that she understands and interprets the world. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about Mulder and he's open. He's quite open. But does he have the structure for that kind of expression? I don't. Th that was what came to mind as I was just thinking. Oh yes, her training. She talks about it all the time. Very pilot episode, almost every episode of the first season. Um, and yet, when it comes down to it, the thing that that she that that really truly helps her understand something of this magnitude is is exorcism. Right. You know. I mean, that's just. Right. I don't know. What do you think, Brian? Well, the thing I thought of, it's a theme I often dwell on, maybe if not for my own personal reasons, if, if for other intellectual reasons, is this issue that I call, just for a joke, my first law of the thermodynamics of religion or spirituality, which is, and we've got uh, we've got a professor of specifically spirituality on the line. Oh, yeah. Here, we got to so hear David's David, take on this. this is, I'm, I'm just pitching this over to you without any commitments or, or, or fear that I'm right or wrong. But um, the first rule of the thermodynamics of spirituality or, theor or theology or religion is religion is neither created nor destroyed. It simply moves. And when whenever I hear somebody using, you know, religious language or accessing things this way, you know, the kind of eco apocalypse stuff. I know that a lot of a lot has been made about people who are into like eco apocalypse, that it's like basically the book of Revelation for people who don't believe in Revelation anymore or something like that. And and for Scully, though, it's like I don't know enough about her character arc to know, like, is she like, could you make a case for her that this is like you know, that science is a kind of religion for her. I know that that's a kind of popular way of putting it, maybe too blunt, but um, what do you think? So I've got a lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> Go for it. So the, the first thing is that um, even though Mulder is the titular kind of main character of the show, even though it seems like it's all about him, my thesis is that the entire kind of run of the show is really about Scully and oh. her development. Oh. Um, and I think that Mulder never really changes as a dramatic character. He doesn't really grow or change. And so if you, if you look at the Mulder that turns around in the chair in the very first episode there in the basement of the J. Edgar Hoover building, episode one of season one, and if you look at the Mulder that turns around in the chair in the movie, I want to believe, which is, you know, 
way beyond the ninth season and the the story is going in new directions he's the same guy he's older but he's fundamentally the same person in terms of his beliefs and those beliefs are and as you were kind of talking brian the the word that came to mind was kind of fundamentalist like he has his Mm -hmm. reality and his reality is not going to change scully in contract lee did you want to say something well i was you know the word that i was thinking of and i want to hear you i want to hear more from you about fundamentalist but i was thinking it's sort of, and I hate to even say it, there's kind of an immaturity there. I love, I love him. I love him. But um, there's, there's moments where he's very boyish in his, his appreciation. But I, I've been, I hadn't thought about it in terms of him not really ever changing that general outlook. But I want to hear more from you about the fundamentalism. Well, I, I I don't think that he changes as a if we think about like characters in dramas. So some characters in dramas they're there to kind of be foils for the growth of other characters. Sure. And in the structure of the drama, I think that Mulder is really a foil for Scully because mm. you can you can map such a character growth arc. The the Scully in I want to believe. So the last scene of I want to believe, which is the second X-Files movie, is Scully and Mulder have fled the FBI. They're working kind of off the books and Scully's working as a physician in a hospital. And she's she starts in on doing a uh, an operation on a young a young child who needs her help and in the in the in the operating theater through the window you can see that the nuns who run the hospital are watching her mm-hmm. and for me that's the wonderful synthesis of both her science and her her growth in terms of these supernatural kinds of beliefs is that the the scully that we see at the beginning of the series when she walks into the J. Edgar Hoover building is a Scully who has been raised Catholic but is committed to science and isn't really religious. The Scully that we see after nine seasons is a Scully who has synthesized her religious belief. It has grown and progressed beyond the boundaries of Catholicism, but it still has roots there. But it also still maintains the science. She hasn't lost anything, but in a Hegelian sense, she's alfhebunged all that stuff <laughs> and brought it into a higher level. And uh, I mean, so so really the growth that you see in the series in terms of character for me is Scully, which is what, I mean, for me, uh-huh. it's a fascinating show about Scully because in my own life, I have these two things. Like I'm, I'm very much committed to science and rationality and materiality, and I'm a deeply almost kooky religious person. This integration that you speak of is actually pretty tough. Like it's tough to pull off. Like, does the show give any any kind of 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 map for how that looks to do that successfully? Well, Leah, I'd be interested in your take on this too, but I'll give you mine. Um, I think that Scully remains a rationalist, and she is confronted again and again by evidence that cannot be explained. Mm. And so she has two choices at that point. And early on, she just she just contravenes the evidence and says, I cannot incorporate this. But over time, she starts to say, I can't explain it, but I can't deny that it's there. And so those things that are beyond, I mean, think about Anselm's proof for the existence of God. God is the being the greater than which we can imagine or we can conceive. So Scully begins to say, there are things that are greater than which my rationality can incorporate. 
That doesn't mean that they don't exist. That means that I just don't have the language or the structure to incorporate them, but I'm not going to pretend like I haven't seen the things that I've seen. So it's, it's, it's that willingness to admit the beyond, even if you can't explain the beyond, that actually makes her a good scientist because she's, she's sort of moving through that kind of Thomas Kuhn, Karl Popper kind of shift of paradigms. You're watching it in real time. You know, the person who comes to mind for me with Scully is William James, the early 20th century American empiricist and pragmatist. And I think she sort of embodies James's, uh, his call to do religious studies, which is robustly centered around empiricism. So she is a true empiricist in that way. And one of the, the, shows that I like to contrast in my own mind because they came out around in kind of the same era, but they also have a very different orientation toward religion and religious experience and religious practice is Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the X-Files because Joss Whedon is a very, very traditional, fundy, atheist type person. He, uh, the guy who created Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And you see that play out throughout the series. Um, there's a very two-dimensional portrayal. And I, I need to be clear. I love Buffy and I I will always love Buffy, but there's a very- She loves it. It's true. It's true. I talk about it. Any any opportunity. But, but I will say that there's a very religion bad kind of portrayal of religion and religious people and religious practices. But The X-Files, I think, takes a truly empirical approach to it through the eyes of Scully. There are things that we cannot understand. There are dimensions of this world that remain a mystery to us. And I don't know, maybe that's why it's the show still has staying power. I watch it all the time. It's kind of my go-to if I've had a bad time with something. I love watching The X-Files. There's something very comforting about it, even though it's creepy and mysterious. Maybe that's why. Okay. Um, as we bring the ship in for a landing here, David, I cannot help but ask about Chris Carter today, as we record this, had an op-ed in the New York Times about the impending UFO disclosure report that's coming out to Congress. Um, he's He is basically, and I don't know if you've read this, David, but he says he's skeptical that this new report is going to give us any clear answers. And, and, and he seemed to just have a general, I guess, skepticism just about the way that our government works and the kind of information that we might get. He says like, well, maybe it's the case, in fact, that the top secret information that's really needed is like top secret even, it's like secret even from the secret people, which made me realize maybe there's a point here to draw it back to the show itself to say, I know a lot of, of X-Files fans feel that the show maybe lost its way a little bit, um, especially as the seasons got on because they started piling plot twist after plot twist after angle after angle. And so I wondered if somehow you could weave together these things of, of Chris Carter feeling like maybe our government actually does work that way. Like it's, 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 we're, we're not going to get any real answers. It's so frustrating with the fact that the show just got more Byzantine, even to the point where some fans felt, you know, they'd kind of lost their way. So I, I, I haven't talked about this much, but I've begun talking about it more publicly. My childhood was, I was raised in a kind of militia environment, and my mother was a deeply convicted conspiracy theorist, mm. um, it, to the point where it, it kind of had some kind of psychotic and uh, and sort of dissociative kind of moments with, with kind of lived reality. Um, one of the things that I have learned over the years of being around people who are conspiracy theorists and have, and, and in 
paying attention to actual conspiracies like the Iran-Contra affair, the MK Ultra experiments, those kinds of things, is that oftentimes we do have this kind of compartmentalization where there are there are levels of government that don't know what other levels of government or levels of science that don't know what other levels of science are doing. And oftentimes these will represent kind of warring factions one for another. So you're not always talking about one conspiracy, but multiple conspiracies. Mm. One of the things that I actually love so much about the later X-Files is it begins to explore that reality of overlapping and warring conspiracies where it's not just us against the shadow government, but actually there are three or four shadow governments that are all fighting each other while they're fighting the main characters. <laughs> to me, that actually makes it more realistic yeah. because that in, in the, the history that I, that I've observed in the 20th century, both up close and, you know, from a, from studying it as a scholar is that that's actually kind of how these cabals work oftentimes. Now with regard to Chris Carter's statements in the New York times today, I'm going to make a kind of general statement about Chris Carter and other auteurs like J.J. Abrams. They tend to work better when they are in collaboration with others and not necessarily telling the story all themselves. Ah. And so I am not so thrilled with Chris Carter's vision of the X-Files or how Chris Carter thinks the actual spine of the X-Files curves. What I like is when... Uh, when Chris Carter is working with others like Frank Spotnitz and uh, I'm forgetting the name of the guy that, that went on to do Breaking Bad, but basically those collaborators actually made the Vince stories. Gilligan? The story. Is it Vince, Vince Gilligan? Vince Gilligan, yeah. exactly. Actually made those storylines better. So Chris Carter talking off the cuff in an op-ed, I think that you're going to get some stuff that is pretty ham-fisted, if I can use that term. Like it's it's very on the nose. It's very much a kind of stilted way of dealing with the subtleties of these kinds of things. Whereas if he was writing this with Vince Gilligan and Frank Spotnitz and others, you would get a much more subtle story out of that, a much more interesting story than just the kind of story that he's trying to weave for us about how he thinks the government works. And the, the great examples of this are when we get to the very last episode of the original series and when we start to get into the reboot series, we get a lot of exposition about conspiracies and the way that conspiracies work that is very didactic. And I think that that's kind of the way that that uh, Chris Carter thinks about these things. He thinks about them linearly and didactically, where the conspiracies that I'm familiar with never work that way. They're, they're not easily explained and they're not in a straight line. They weave back on on each other like Ouroboruses and they really they're, they're hard to pin down. And I, I think that, you know, to the extent that Chris Carter is saying that we're not going to get access to the truth through this report, he's probably right. But I think his reasons for that may not be as as useful narratively as some other reasons might be. David, before we go, I want to ask you a question about, um, you mentioned a couple of other shows. I think you mentioned Fringe, which I thought was an impeccable show as well. Um, but is there anything that you're watching right now that gets, that fires those same or similar creative energies around this idea of faith and skepticism, spirituality, empiricism. Is there anything that that you are that that's helping your thinking in a similar way? My family is rewatching Lost right now uh, oh. because we're introducing our two kids who are 11 and 9 to the show for the first time. Wow. And it's it's really fascinating to me to go back because I loved that show so much and to really go back and kind of look at those pieces. But I will say the 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 most recent thing that I've watched that really, really hit the same nerve endings that X-Files did is a show that was on FX a number of years ago called The Americans. I, I love just, that show. 
that show is impeccable. And, and it did bring up some of the faith and creed and, and those kinds of issues, but it was not, it was not in the spooky way that, uh, that the X-Files did, but it, it does it in a, in a similar kind of vein. And there is, there's that conspiratorial edge, but there's also the ideological edge and X-Files got into this, not always so explicitly. The Americans gets into it explicitly, but I think both those shows are good complements to one another, and they certainly speak to a certain spirit of the times. Uh, hear, hear. Amen and amen. I love that. We need to have you back again so we can talk about the Americans. David, you had, yes, some, please. You had some takes in there that are going to have my mind swimming a little bit, and your your discourse on Chris Carter and like just that, that need for collaboration oh. where some of this stuff could go, I think, just from like an artistic, collaborative, even a scholarly standpoint is, is, uh, is something we should be thinking about. Yes. yes. Never let J.J. Abrams act alone. That's a good maxim for all storytellers. <laughs> you know, we got you know, to start doing on the pod is start making, we got to just uh, on the merch, on the, on our, in our merch store, we, we just got to start like making t-shirts, like just phrases that come up. <laughs> Never, Never let J.J. Abrams. Abrams act alone. We got to give uh, David a cut. Of Eric the, uh, Kripke needs more shows. Yeah, there's a few like, things. There's just like, there'd be a few of these per <laughs> show, but we got to, we got to get cranky on that. David Dalt, you are a pleasure and you are a scholar and you're a wonderful thinker. I'm so, so happy that we talked to you today. Thank you so much david and for those who want to hear more from david definitely check out his show things not seen radio thank you david thank you both so much i love weird religion it is one of my favorite shows of all time and i'm so (laughs) glad to come on call me anytime oh yeah we will you'll be sorry hey thanks for listening weirdos keep it weird everyone certified 100 percent weird for extras on subjects covered in this episode and other related jokes don't forget to follow us on the socials and visit our website weirdreligion.com our production features musical stylings by our very own brian doak but our official theme music is still by cassie blum our album artwork is by john williams when you podcast podcast with us the end The tracks are armed. Such a violent word, armed. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the appropriate use, though. Mm-hmm. Um, Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> that's the way. <laughs>